sermon passage for this morning out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, can be found on page 987 in the Bible in front of you. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. One of the things I, I love most about living where we live here in Northern Virginia is the change in seasons. Uh, so as we looked at the weather forecast for this weekend, for today, uh, while my wife lamented, I rejoiced. I love the change from summer to fall, from the, the heaviness of the heat to the touch of cool air. I think this uh, this... Changing of the seasons is a great gift from God, seems obvious to me. Um, Not just for the comfort of it, but it seems like it also carries with it a lesson. And the lesson is an important one, which is that things are going to change. So the fact is that the way things are, uh, the way the world is, uh, the way it runs, the way it fails, the, the way it hurts, the way righteous people suffer, the way evil people prosper, these things are gonna change. Things are not always going to be the way that they are right now. Uh, So just think about like like a harsh winter in which things die, gives way to the warmth of spring where where things bud and things grow and things prosper and, and things live. So the Bible tells us A new season is on the way for the world in which we live. And I I wonder, just as we begin here this morning, I wonder if you ever think about that. Do you consider the change that's coming? How often do you think about the reality that the world as it is, is not as it soon will be? Does Does the promise of the new season that's coming, does it change the way that you live in this season? This is the the very basic main point of the passage this morning. We need to get ready for the change that's coming. That's the point. You you need to get ready for the change that's coming. 
the Bible definitely wants you to think about this. So evidently the people who made up the church that was in Thessalonica, evidently they thought about this. So according to verse 1, it seems as though maybe they had written to the apostles for some help in thinking about these things well. You see there in verse 1, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So here toward the conclusion of this letter, the apostles turn now to address questions of what they call times and seasons. Now, when the Bible talks about times and seasons in this way, it's not referring to to summer, fall, winter, spring. It's referring to the the dawning of entirely new ages. And and it's referring to the the historic, the momentous events, the, the days that were expected to accompany these changes. So from the very beginning of the Bible, we have in this book, what we have in this book is a story of Promises made by God and promises kept by God. So over and over, God makes promises to his people about future landmark uh, days or, or events by which they could measure and prove his faithfulness. This is how the story of redemption moves along. And what's happening here in the New Testament in the church in Thessalonica is that the people are putting together that all these promised days on God's divine calendar, they're, they're coming and they're going. They're being fulfilled. So think about it. Think about what the church in Thessalonica had seen being being fulfilled even in their time. So the promised day of Emmanuel. What about that? The coming of the Christ to be with his people in the flesh. Check, right? That day has come and gone. Jesus has taken on flesh and dwelt among his people. What about the day of atonement when the Lamb of God would lay down his life for the sins of his people? Check, right? This is the cross of Christ. What about the day of Christ's victory, his ascension? Check, that's the resurrection. He, he, he's lived, he died, he's been raised. What about the day of Pentecost, the day of the coming of the Spirit of God? Check, right? The personal presence of God had come from heaven to indwell and empower and claim the church as Christ's own. What about the day of the gospel being preached for people, to people from all nations? Well, this is the book of Acts, right? The gospel is spreading, just like Jesus promised, from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to all kinds of people all over the world. Think about it, the Thessalonian church themselves were Gentiles who had received the good news of the gospel, which means they themselves were proof that the day of salvation for the nations was there. It had come. Check. Right? The point is it's all happening. The Messiah, atonement for sin, victory over death, the Spirit, the gospel to the Gentiles, all this is happening. One by one, the promised days are being fulfilled. All of them, that is, except one. All except what this day that they had heard referred to as the day of the Lord. So this is the question that naturally arises for them and for us. And that question is, well, what about the day? So these Christians knew, according to the teaching that had been handed down from Jesus himself to the apostles, they knew that there is but one more event left unchecked on the divine calendar. One more day left to be fulfilled before an entirely new eternal age could be ushered in. And that event had been referred to as the day of the Lord. And so they inquire about it. That's what Paul brings up here in in verse 2. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The church in Thessalonica, Paul says, he says that they're fully aware 
that there was still a future promised day. The, the day of the Lord was coming. You know, it's worth asking and not presuming, would you say that you're fully aware of the day that's coming? You can be. The Bible certainly wants you to be fully aware. Listen, so Paul doesn't give a, uh, an expansive explanation here in this book, but from the entirety of Scripture, this is what we know about the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a, a future event promised by God on which the Lord will usher in an entirely new eternal age. And while we don't know every detail about the day of the Lord, we, we know a few vital things for certain. So what, how can we be fully aware of the day of the Lord. These are a few things that we know for certain. For one, I don't have an outline today, all right? So you just have to really pay attention, all right? It's not like me, but here we go. For one, the day of the Lord will be a day of the coming of the physical presence of the Lord. That is the, the coming again of Jesus. So on the day of the Lord, Jesus will come again on earth, but it'll be in a way that's different from the first time that he came. So back then in the incarnation, so think Christmas time, Jesus came with great humility as a baby in a womb. But in the coming day, the Bible tells us, he will come in great glory. In that day, he will come not as a baby who's been swaddled, but as a king who's been crowned. So back then, he came in great secrecy. He was noticed only by a few people. But in the coming day, he won't be missed by anyone. He will come in a great display of inescapable glory. So the king's coming, King Jesus coming, it will not be missed. There'll be audible sounds that we'll hear. There'll be physical things that we see. There'll be blessings and curses that people will feel. And that has to do with the purpose of the day of the Lord. And that purpose, I think, is very simply this. The purpose of the day of the Lord is to call people to account. It's to call people to account. So the day of the Lord is the inevitable future day when people, when all people, will be called to give an account of themselves to God. All right, so what this means is that for some, the day of the Lord will be a very bad day. So it's a day on which those who are prideful will be brought low. Um, the Bible says that for those who are living in unrepentant sin and evil, it will be a day of wrath and destruction. For them, the, the, the prophets paint a picture of a day of clouds and gloom. Uh, it's a day of trembling, a day of darkness. The Bible says it's a day of vengeance. It's a day when sin sinners will, will reap what they have sown from the Lord. But that day, that, that same day, which, be, which will be a, a day of well-earned vengeance for some, the Bible says will also be a day of great blessing, a, a day of salvation for others. So for those who are trusting in God's salvation, that is for Christians, the day of the Lord will be an inexpressibly glorious day. So think of the, the grand finale in the 4th of July fireworks, right? It's just pure wonder. It's ecstasy. Uh, imagine the crowd witnessing a walk-off Grand Slam in the World Series, right? It's a frenzy. It's, it's pure, undiluted euphoria, elation. For the sinner who has hidden himself, herself, in Jesus by faith, 
The day of the Lord will be the ultimate pressure release, the final consummation of the salvation and the sanctification and the purification and the glorification for which they have waited, for which they've longed their whole Christian lives. This is the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord, it's a day of final wrath and a day of final salvation. It's a day of final curse and a day of final blessing. It's a day of final judgment and a day of final acquittal, justification. The day of the Lord is the day on which King Jesus himself will come in glorious judgment to usher in the eternal state of every person who has ever lived. You can see why the the church has questions. And, And based on Paul's response, it seems that their questions deal mainly with the timing of this great day, right? They naturally kind of want to know when this might happen. And we see this in the fact that out of all the things that Paul could have said, out of all the truths that he could have pointed out, Paul chooses to highlight one central truth for them about the day of the Lord. And the truth is this. We don't know when it is. We don't know. The day of the Lord will come as a surprise. It will be unexpected. It will come without warning. Look at verses 2 and 3 there. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This is very kind of the Lord to lay out this truth for us. Paul wants us to know that this future promised day will be inevitable and it will be unexpected. So the day is certainly coming, and we certainly don't know when it is. This is the purpose of likening that day to a a thief coming in the night, right? When no one expects company, when all seems quiet and peaceful, then Christ will come. It's unexpected. I think this is the same point driven home again when Paul has us picture those people who live their lives with this false sense of of peace and security, right? While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. While people are are busy living their lives without even a thought of the fact that they'll soon be called to give an account to their maker, he'll show up. In Jesus' own teaching, he likens the day to the the time of Noah and the flood. You remember that? While people are eating and drinking and marrying and living, that is, while, while they're living very normal, untroubled, godless lives, thinking, isn't it nice not to be all paranoid like, like Noah? Isn't that nice? Then God himself will come. The day of judgment and the day of salvation will be upon them. On these people, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. Paul says, like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. It will be, be sudden, without warning, inevitable, inescapable, painful. For those who aren't looking for it, This great and terrible day of the Lord will come absolutely out of nowhere. That's the point of these verses. And here's the point. There will be be no warning shot on that last day. This is the warning right here. You're receiving the warning right now. So listen, if you're here, by God's mercy, now you know. The day of the Lord is coming. We don't know when it's coming. We do know that it's coming. So then what? We're going to get into a lot of application for Christians, but but first, 
I think there's a word here for those who don't know Christ, for those here who would not consider themselves to be believers. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's just it's so wonderful that you're here because God has a message literally explicitly for you right here. And that message is very simply this. It's that there is a God and he has appointed a day when you will be called to give an account to him. And that day could come at any time. There will be a day when people like us are sitting in a building like this, in chairs like those, listening to a pastor like me, and Jesus himself will show up in a way that he never has before. This day is coming, and on that day, in that moment, the life that you've lived and the things that you've said and the things that you've done in rebellion against the God who created you, all those things will be laid bare. And in that day, those who have sinned against God will get what they have deserved from God, what they have stored up for themselves against God. Listen, we don't know every detail about what this looks like, but the Bible paints the picture by using words like this, words like wrath and condemnation and darkness and curse and vengeance and, and separation from any notion of blessing, any notion of peace forever. That's, that's the bad news. It's very bad news. But listen, this is the wonder of the Bible. It gives you good news. And here's the good news. God himself has made a way for legitimate sinners not to be condemned on that day. This is the gospel, the good news of salvation. He's done this by sending Jesus to be condemned in the place of sinners. This is the point of the cross of Christ that you've heard about. Jesus Christ came to die to save sinners. So in the gospel, God has declared that even, even though every single person is a sinner who is guilty before him, any person, any sinner, including you, any sinner who brings glory to Christ by trusting in him as the one who was condemned in their place, that person will not be condemned on the last day. They will instead, based on the merit of Jesus, they will be blessed. They will be saved. And you say, well, they don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. And the Bible says, I know. But you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you will be saved on that day. You will be blessed when you should be cursed. You will be saved. You'll be redeemed. You'll be glorified. This is how one pastor put it. On the cross, Jesus became all that God could condemn so that we could become all that he cannot condemn. And this can be you today. This, this is why the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And you're thinking, well, what day? It was today. That is, it's not tomorrow. It's not on the day of the Lord. That's not the day of salvation. It'll be too late. Today is the day of salvation. You can repent. You can turn from sin and trust in the righteous blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all the guilt and all the shame that you've been carrying around all your life. And you'll be saved on that day. Is such amazing news. And this is, by the way, this is exactly why Paul can move on from this kind of gloomy description of the day of the Lord to reassure the church 
that the day of the Lord will be a happy day for them. Look there in verses 4 and 5. Actually, we'll start in verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They'll not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. All right, so you see that Paul, uh, Paul draws a, a big contrast between how non-Christians and Christians will experience the day of the Lord. You see that in verse 4? And what's the difference? How does he put it? The difference, he says in verse 4, is that Christians are not in the dark. You see that? In the New Testament, a Christian is someone who has been brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light, right? Think 1 Peter 2. So Christians are people on whom the light of God has dawned. So we were in the spiritual darkness of sin, but the light of the gospel has shone on us, and what it's done is it's revealed the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Christians are spiritually awakened people. We are people who know what's going on. We're not in the dark anymore. We're, we're in on the secret of the day of the Lord and that he's coming. In this sense, Paul says that we are people who are living in the daytime. We're, we're people of the light. And to Paul's point, since we live in the light and not in the darkness, we are not a people who will be surprised by the day of the Lord, at least not in the same way that others will be. And that's because, in a sense, we already live like it's daytime, like he's here. I think we can all relate to this difference, right? So just think about the different ways that people experience the light of morning, right? So if you're, if you're on the older side in this room, my guess is that your day has been longer already than those who are younger. So in fact, it, it could be the case that you have less day ahead of you than behind you at this point. That Sunday afternoon nap is calling you. So the sun that, that we look out and see out the window did not surprise you in the least today. In fact, you saw it coming up. You were waiting for it. You were on your third cup of coffee when you first saw the sun. But you teenagers, it's probably a different story, huh? So we can all remember when we were teenagers, right? We stay up deep into the night and then Sometime towards the morning, you know, we drift off into sleep. And then the morning would come, and we wouldn't even know it, right? We don't, it's what? It's morning, right? So we're just sleeping deeply, soundly, in the darkness of our rooms, our blackout curtains. But our parents, being good parents, they wouldn't let us sleep all day. So what do parents do? They come into our rooms, they walk over to the windows, they throw open the curtains, and this rush of light would flood into the room with bad intentions, right? It would startle us awake. It would throw us into a panic because, because we were so deeply asleep in such a dark place, the light of the morning took us by surprise. It hurt our eyes. It shocked our bodies. And for Paul's purposes here, he says, that's, that's not us, church. You know, we used to live in darkness. And when you're in darkness, the, the sudden flood of Christ's light comes with certain startling violence. But now, he says, he says we're already awake. No, we, we live in the light. 
This is is actually your identity as a Christian. You're a child of the light. That's what he says. Of the day. And this means that the coming of the Lord is not to surprise us like a thief in the night. Because we don't live in the night. We live in the day. We've seen the sun come up. We're welcoming its presence. At least we should be. This gets to Paul's application, I think, there in verse 6. He says it very plainly for us. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Christian, you are a child of light. You have been awakened, spiritually awakened, to the truth of Christ's return. So what is the application to such truth? It seems like Paul gives two things. Wake up and sober up. Wake up and sober up. Maybe I do have an outline. There you go. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Interestingly, Paul has a category for the fact that it's possible for an awakened Christian to fall asleep. Right? Otherwise, he wouldn't... He wouldn't exhort us to stay awake. I think we need to know this. We need to know that it's possible for a Christian to to slip into a season of spiritual slumber. You can imagine what a season might look like, right? So a season in which there's no real spiritual progress. Uh, There's very little affections for for Christ. There's very little motivation for obedience, very little sense of eager expectation for the coming of the Lord. Christians can be in seasons when when our spiritual nerves are kind of dulled. Jesus doesn't seem as real. His promises don't seem as near. The path that he lays out for us doesn't seem as bright. You know, maybe even as I'm talking, you're getting a category for the way that you yourself have felt lately. Like, Like there's a spiritual lethargy in your soul. You know, John Bunyan, uh, author of Pilgrim's Progress, He has a great scene in that classic work. So probably most of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or at least familiar with it. If you don't, the the story is this extended metaphor of the Christian life, right? So there's there's believers who are on this journey. They've headed out from the city of destruction to the celestial city, right? They're they're heading to this eternally joyful home of the king of the land. And on this journey, the Christians, these main characters, they face all kinds of obstacles to their arriving safely home, right? So they they experience suffering, they experience persecution, temptation, false doctrine, all kinds of things. And as the characters get to the, the end of their journey, near to the end of their journey, they face yet another obstacle, but it's an obstacle that's much subtler and it's actually much harder to discern. As Bunyan describes it, he says that the Christians enter a place called the enchanted ground. And as it turns out, this is one of the most dangerous places of all. Because in this country, this enchanted ground, it's not that there's overt persecution. It's not that there's obvious suffering. It's not that there's obvious overt false teaching. Rather, in the enchanted ground, there's just something in the air that puts people to sleep. They walk along just breathing in this air and their wits are dimmed and their sharpness of mind is dulled and they're, they're tempted, not by any big obvious obstacle, 
but by the mere atmosphere in which they walk, to sleep, to quit, to not move forward. You know, church, I, I, think it's, I think it's safe to say that many of us have found ourselves before or maybe are finding ourselves even now to be spiritually lethargic. Our, our minds are foggy. Our affections for Christ are dulled. You know, it could be this is because we're nursing some secret sin. If that's the case, we need to root it out. But it seems that this lethargy could also be attributable to the fact that we've simply forgotten that the, the world, the culture in which we live, this is the enchanted ground. The very air we breathe every day, by virtue of simply living where and when we do, can make us spiritually drowsy, can make us lethargic. I think we just need to be aware of this, that the things with which we inevitably, unavoidably engage every day, they can serve as sedatives to our spiritual lives. The things of this world, even the things which aren't inherently sinful, can serve as spiritual downers to us. They can put us to sleep. So I would just encourage you, if you're sitting there thinking, I mean, yeah, I mean, this idea of spiritual lethargy kind of seems to diagnose me pretty well, but I don't know what to do about it. It seems like we could, just, we could start by just taking stock of the kind of air you breathe every day. What environment are you in and what effect does it have on you? Is the, is the air that you breathe, is it air that brings you spiritual life? Or is it air that tends to kind of dull your spiritual awareness? I think you can look in all kinds of areas, right? You could think of more than me. You could think of, you could think of the entertainment that you take in. So what, what, effect, what effect does the things that you watch have on you? Have you asked that question? It's probably a good question to ask. Does the enchanted ground of your entertainment, does it make you more discontent at heart? Does it make you unhappy with where the Lord has you and what he's given you? Does it make you more lustful in your mind? Does it more, make you more licentious in your lifestyle? Does it make you more worldly in the way that you make decisions? Does it make you more bitter in your relationships? Does it make you more cut off from those relationships? Just take stock. Maybe another area to look could be the things to which we've committed our time. You know, the reality is that it takes time to cultivate love for Christ and love for his church. But that time is limited for every single one of us. Which means, when it comes to the extent to which we're spiritually awake, it totally matters where we commit our time. And in a place like Northern Virginia, it seems possible that that simple, kind of seemingly harmless commitment to more things than one Christian life is meant to hold, that this could, over time, serve as a wedge between us and the things that stoke love and expectation for Christ and his return. That seems totally possible for me. C.S. Lewis, he, he warned about this, this uh this sense of overcommitment to the wrong things uh, in his uh, popular work, The Screwtape Letters. So you remember that? So in this, in this uh, work, you have Uncle, uh, the de Uncle Demon, Uncle Screwtape. He's writing to his nephew about the art of, of keeping the patient, that is the Christian's heart, for Jesus dull and distant. This is his advice, his demonic advice. He says, but do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, that is Christ. 
It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You know, Christian, I, w- I would just ask, I would just say that it can't hurt to ask yourself, to what things have you uncompromisingly committed your time? Maybe just make a list of them. And what's their effect? What difference do they make in your everyday life? Are there any things in your life that are serving to cut you off from the regular means of grace, like scripture and prayer and engagement in church life, that would make you more awake to the reality that Christ is coming again? Listen, these things, these means of grace, scripture, prayer, church, the ordinances, these things, these things are the, the, the spiritual smelling salts that are designed to keep us awake, to keep us watchful, even as we live in enchanted ground. So I just encourage you, don't cut yourself off from them. Your duty is to stay awake, to spiritually stay awake. And I would say your duty then is to diagnose what things are helping you fall asleep. What's dulling your senses? Christian, Christ is coming. We don't know when he's coming. Let this truth both encourage you and wake you up. This is the aim of one of the final articles of the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. So Christians uh, for all time have noticed this truth and they've said, they've told us why Christ has set it up this way. It says this, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may ever be prepared to say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, amen. The light of Christ's coming, in light of Christ's coming, we are, it says, to shake off our all carnal security and to always be watchful. It seems that, like Paul's hitting on this when he says that we're not all only to be awake, but we're also to be sober. You see that at the end of verse 6? So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. This is the opposite of being intoxicated, to say it plainly, right? To be intoxicated, it's simply to have too much of the wrong substance flooding our system. Right, And the the result of intoxication is a failure to be able to to think clearly, to feel rightly, to function healthfully. And the remedy is to sober up, to flush the system. Again, to Paul's metaphor here, right? Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. His point is that there, there are some things which by their very nature belong to the night, belong to the darkness, belong to that kind of lifestyle outside of Christ. Sleeping, being being fatigued and lethargic and drunk. But that's not us, he says. Verse 8, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. It doesn't seem like Paul's speaking of literal 
physical drunkenness here, right? Although that'd be a fine application. That's what you take from it. Seems that he's speaking in the realm of spiritual sobriety. That is, having been awakened from the night, having been enlightened from out of the dark, we are to be spiritually sober people. I think to put it plainly by means of uh, four means of application, we Christians, we are to be careful not to have too much of the wrong substances flooding our spiritual system. Got to guard against this. So I think we've got to know that it's possible for us to become intoxicated in mind, intoxicated in spirit. So if you flood your your mental, your spiritual system with this continual cocktail of unfiltered news and ideas and podcasts and influencers and opinions, then we shouldn't be surprised when you're affected by that or infected by that, I guess we could say. Christian, you can become intoxicated. You can become confused and combative and disruptive and sleepy and not very much use at all. That's totally possible. So let me just encourage you again, take stock of what you're putting into your your mental, your spiritual, your emotional system. What substances are you letting in through what you see or what you hear? At what dosage? What are the side effects? It will do us good to be honest about those things. The, The point here is is not that all the things that we take in are inherently bad. The point is that as children of the day, as children of the light, we're meant to live our lives by something completely different than this continual drip of, of the enchanted ground. We're meant to live by things much better, greater gifts of the Spirit to us. You know what those are? You're meant to live, Christian, by faith and by love and by hope. So what he gets into there in verse 8. And you cannot do this if you're intoxicated. Intoxication of spirit will dull your faith. It will blunt your love. It will cut off your hope. This is why he says, look there in verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What does this look like? He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul would have us put on spiritual armor. You see that? The the implication is that the struggle to stay awake is a fight. So if you find it hard to stay spiritually awake in this life, Paul would say, yeah, I know, I know. You gotta gotta fight, you gotta put on armor. And interestingly, here at least, what are the weapons? What will help you stay awake and stay sober? Notice it's not a crusade, it's not a life hack, it's not a new can't-miss routine, it's none of these things. It's faith, and it's love, and it's hope. What does it look like to fight to stay awake in the midst of the sleepy, tired, drunken world? Paul says it looks like cultivating faith. You know God, now cultivate faith in God. Cultivate how you trust him. It looks like cultivating love for him and hope in him. Staying awake, it looks like trusting God. It looks like adoring God. It looks like setting all your confidence in God. It means putting the time and energy and finances and all these things into things that fuel your faith and your love and your hope in Christ. 
That's what you do. This is what you need, Christian. You stay awake, you stay ready for the day of the Lord by nurturing your faith and nurturing your love and nurturing your hope. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, okay, great, well, now I gotta do this stuff, right? Now I gotta try to drum up more faith, right? I've already felt, I'm, I've, I feel terrible enough, now I gotta draw, drum up more love and more hope. I've already proven that I'm entirely incapable of doing any of this. Let me just encourage you you don't have to drum up anything. You don't have to drum up anything. Your job is not to drum up faith. Your job is very simply to look to Christ. Look to Christ. Christ will fuel your faith. Christ will fuel your love. Christ will fuel your hope. This is exactly what Paul does for us here in verses 8 through 10. Look there again. He says, but since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. Why why can we take up faith in Christ even though his great day of final judgment is imminent? So why why can we love Christ even though he's coming to judge the living and the dead? How can we hope in Christ even though he's the one to whom all authority and power and judgment has been given? Because, church, listen closely, verse 9. God's word to you. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you wake up to. This is what sobers you up. Christian, wake up to God's promise that he will not condemn anyone who is in Christ. Put your faith in that. Christian, wake up to the love of God for you as he's shown it in Christ and love him. Christian, wake up to the truth that on the final day, God will not condemn you. He will save you. And you put every drop of your hope in that reality. Church, listen, this this passage about the great and terrifying day of the Lord, it is a passage of assurance for Christians. Do you see that? Paul is in no way angry at the church here. He in every way wants to encourage them towards faith and hope and love. This is assurance. This is the message for Christians. God has not destined you to be condemned. That's your truth. So here's one very practical piece of application. You can stop condemning yourself. If you are a Christian, you are not a condemned person. If you're a Christian, you do not live in a perpetual state of guilt. And you need to wake up from it. You live in a perpetual state of righteousness and acceptance and love and grace and mercy in Christ. Wake up. This is the armor for your battle. This is your protection. 
You believe what Jesus says instead of lies about him. You love Christ instead of loving substitutes for him. You hope in Jesus instead of hoping in anything less than him. You can set your faith and your love and your hope on him. Because listen, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. So that whether we're asleep or awake, I think he's kind of changed metaphors there. Now he's talking life and death, I think. Whether you live or you die, you'll live with him. Why aren't you condemned? Why aren't you a condemned person? Because Christ died for you. Do you see that believing that you're condemned undercuts the work of Christ for you? It doesn't cut you off from it, but it certainly undercuts your experience of it. Believe that you're not condemned because Christ died for you. Listen, in an enchanted land that would have every person find their unique identity, right? You set out on this path and now you got to find the true you, who you really are, who you, who you, who you, all these things. This is the identity of the church. We are the people for whom Christ died. That's your identity. Stop looking for it. Jesus died for you. That's who you are. This is what it means to be awake, to be ready, to be children of the light. Because Jesus was condemned, you're not condemned. Because he descended into darkness, we wake up to light. Because Jesus took on death, we take on life. The day of the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. Don't you just love verse 11's application in light of all this? What do we do? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What do you do with the truth that the day of the Lord is coming? Well, you look around and you, you see who's discouraged and you see who's struggling and you encourage them and you build them up with the truths you see right here. So listen, when you're speaking to another Christian, another member of the church who's going through a really hard season, they're experiencing pain and injustice, you, you can encourage them. You have truth to encourage them with. It can be as simple as, hey, listen, I'm so sorry. I want to encourage you. The day of the Lord's coming. The Spirit will take that and encourage them. Listen, when you hear that a member of the church is weighed down with the guilt of their ongoing struggle with sin, you can build them up with this. You have words to say. You can say, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. Listen, every single one of us, when we experience another difficult week in this sleepy, enchanted world, it's, it's tempting us to drift off into spiritual sleep. This is what we can do. We can come back together we can come back every week right here to wake one another up to the beauty of walking by faith in Christ. It's what we come to do every week. It's what we come to do even now as we get up and stand up and come forward to the Lord's table. We eat this bread and we drink this cup and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now for faith we pray for love, and we pray for hope. We pray that the reality of the fact that we are not condemned would help us to be ready for your coming again. And we pray that you would be glorified in us as we wait for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.